Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Today is January 20th, 2021, and today the United States installed a new president, and no matter who the president is, at least half the country is upset about it, and right now there's a whole lot of political emotion running around out there on the internet. A lot of uh, extreme joy for no good reason, or extreme hatred for no real good reason. There's very little neutrality out there on the internet. So I am here tonight to bring you some hope for your soul and some confidence that the Word of God does not change despite the fact that the world keeps changing. Our hope, our confidence, The answers that we're all looking for can't be found in any man. Politically, we always think, well, the next guy, he's going to solve it. He's going to fix it. The next guy. I've lived through presidents ever since Eisenhower. There were presidents that I liked and presidents that I disliked. And I lived through every single one of them by the grace of God because he took care of me and he fed me. And he provided for me through all of them. Jesus Christ is still in the process of building his own church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we keep going back as the church of Jesus Christ. We keep going back to what does the word of God say? Now what you're going to see tonight from Isaiah 27, which by the way is where we're beginning tonight. Isaiah 27 is yet again God telling us in advance what the future is going to be. God has this astounding batting average where he predicts things and then they do in fact occur. So he has proven time and time again through history that he is in absolute control of human history and world history. And he keeps demonstrating it over and over again. So when we come across segments of scripture like the one we're going to look at tonight and we say well that hasn't happened yet you can have every confidence that it is going to happen and in fact human history is driving inexorably toward these things happening because it is the almighty God who is in charge of human history who said these are the things that he's going to do and that can give you peace That can give you the peace that passes understanding. That can give you confidence. That can give you hope because you know that no matter how crazy and stupid and silly and ridiculous and sometimes hopeless the world looks, then nevertheless, our God is in control and our God knows exactly what he's doing. If you look back over the course of human history and the course of this world, nations have grown up and nations have disappeared. And kings have come up, and kings have been taken down, and whole kingdoms have disappeared. 
And the nations are like a drop in the bucket to God. He's not impressed by man's attempt to regulate and govern himself. God, from the very beginning, set himself up as the ruler of the earth, as the king of the earth. And men have constantly disregarded his way of doing things and instead have decided that they will self-govern. And whenever human beings govern themselves, they do it badly. And that is the history of the world. And the reason that people don't seem to know that is because we have quit teaching history. Which is why I keep saying the only thing we've learned from history is that we've learned nothing from history. But if you look at the course of this world, not just biblical history, but world history, you'll see that generation after generation, century by century, human beings have been on the planet and they have had kings and they have had rulers and they have had despots. They have had nothing but trouble. So it should not be a surprise to us that yet again the political machinations of human beings have caused all kinds of upset and the fury and the indignation of human beings and God is going to do what God is going to do and here yet again we're going to look at him declaring what it is he is going to do with the world. In other words, cheer up saints, it's going to get worse, but also cheer up saints, don't let your heart be troubled because you know that God is in control. Okay, so there's my political speech for the moment. And in so doing, I've also introduced Isaiah 27. Now, to look at Isaiah 27 and understand it, it is not what we would consider symbolic language, but it is illustrative language. In other words, God illustrates his intentions, but he starts right out in verse 1 by declaring that he's going to control Leviathan. And there's not a person in here who has ever dealt with Leviathan. We don't know if there ever was a Leviathan. We know in modern taxonomy there are no Leviathans hanging around. But what you do know biblically is that most references to serpents and Leviathans and sea creatures, sea monsters, are ultimately references to Satan himself. And that is the way the word is being used here. You may recall when we went through the book of Job that the word Leviathan showed up. God himself used it and said, when comparing himself to human beings, he said, can you put a hook in Leviathan's jaw and make him do your bidding? God was demonstrating that he could do that. Human beings can't do that. I doubt that God was just referring to some mythical unknown creature when he said that. This Leviathan, whatever it was, probably did at some point exist. Just like we have evidence that dinosaurs did exist at some point. They're just not in the modern taxonomy. So in that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan. Now, the very fact that he used the phrase in that day, a phrase that we've seen repeatedly in the book of Isaiah, you know that he's talking about in the end days, in the days to come, in the days when he wraps up all of human history and brings about the deliverance of Israel. In that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan. The NASB says the fleeing serpent. And with his fierce and great and mighty sword, 
even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. So between Leviathan and the dragon, this is clearly a reference to Satan himself. Look at the very end of the previous chapter. Because the next thing we're going to read in chapter 27 is all about the restoration of Israel. Prior to the restoration of Israel, there is the Lord punishing Leviathan. And previous to that, in verse 21, for behold, the Lord is about to come out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. So what do we have here? We have an order of events. That order of events is God punishes the nations, all nations, the whole earth. And then he punishes Leviathan. And then he turns his attention to Israel, who is referred to in verse 2 as a vineyard of wine. Sing of it. Just so you know that it's obviously Israel, look at verse 6. In the days to come, Jacob, that's Israel, will take root. Israel will blossom and sprout, and they will fill the whole world with fruit. So here's the order of events. First, God pours out judgment on the nations. Then he judges Leviathan, Satan. And then he turns his attention to Israel, And there is the glorious kingdom that God has promised to Israel repeatedly. Now, if that sounds familiar, go to the book of Revelation at the very end of the Bible. In the book of Revelation chapter 20, you should be familiar with all this. Actually, we're going to start reading in chapter 19. Let's start reading at verse 11. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Who is that one who is called Faithful and True on the white horse who is returning to judge the earth? That's Jesus Christ himself. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and upon his head are many crowns, many diadems. He has a name written upon him that no one knows except himself, and he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in the heavens, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he might smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh is a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That means that he is the superior king over all other kings. And he is going to rule over the nations as he judges them with his sharp sword and with the rod of iron that he has in his hand. He treads out the winepress of the fierce wrath of God as he judges the nations. Verse 17, I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in the mid heaven, come assemble yourself for the great supper of God in order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and slaves. And small and great. 
And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him that sat upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Okay, that's the judgment of the nations. That is the same event that we just read about at the end of Isaiah 26 that God in his wrath is going to return to judge all the nations of the earth. The only thing that's been added in the book of Revelation is that we now know that Jesus Christ is the person who is going to come back and do that judging. He is the one who is going to be king of kings and lord of lords, and the nations are going to be judged. What's the next thing that happens? Chapter 20, verse 1 of the book of Revelation, and I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the keys of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old. That is the same language that we saw in Isaiah 27. In that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea, and he will do it in that day. Same language. He is going to lay hold on that dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. So now it's defined for us and bound him for a thousand years. Okay, same order of events. Christ returns. He judges the nations. Then he turns his attention to Satan himself, judges Satan. Thousand years puts Satan into the abyss. Verse 3, he threw him into the abyss and he shut it and he sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. And then... After Satan is bound, after he's put into the abyss so that he cannot deceive the nations anymore, then God turns his attention to Israel. And then you have a thousand years of the kingdom with Jesus sitting on David's throne, ruling from Jerusalem, and the nations all receiving their blessings from God through Jerusalem. Ultimately, then, in chapter 21 of the book of Revelation, you get the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem, the kingdom that has been promised all the way through the Old Testament, the ultimate glorious future for Israel. So the exact same order of events that you see in Revelation 19 and 20 are the exact same order of events that you see in Isaiah 26 and 27. That's my whole point, is to show you that the Bible keeps telling the same story over and over again. And that is the order of events. So now back in Isaiah Chapter 27, verse 1, in that day the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. He will punish him with his fierce and great and mighty sword, that sword out of the mouth of Christ with which he judges the nations and then judges Leviathan, that old twisted serpent who is identified for us as Satan, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. And then... Verse 2 turns to God's future promises for Israel and the restoration of Israel and the establishment of the glorious kingdom 
that is promised to Israel. The language is colorful, the language is poetic, the language is illustrative, but as I pointed out in verse 6, this is all about Jacob, and this is all about Israel blossoming and sprouting. Sometimes Israel is referred to as the vineyard of God. Verse 2 says, in that day, once he is beat up on the nations, and once he's done away with Satan himself, in that day, a vineyard of wine, sing about it. Wine is a sign of gladness. Wine is a sign of abundance. In that day, there's going to be a vineyard of wine. So sing about that. I, the Lord, am its keeper. He's the vine dresser. He refers to himself frequently as the vine dresser of Israel. I, the Lord, am the keeper, the vine dresser. I water that vine at every moment. That's why it's such a healthy vine, full of grapes and wine. I water it every moment, lest anyone would damage it, and I guard it night and day. I have no wrath. Should someone give me briars and thorns in battle, then I will step on them, and I will burn them completely. Or... Let him, the one who gives me briars and thorns in battle, or let him rely on my protection and let him make peace with me. Let him make peace with me. Okay, so what's the point of that? That's God saying there's only two ways this ends. You've only got two options. You've only got two choices. You either are working against me and you're setting up briars and thorns in the battle, in which case I will stomp them down, stomp you down, burn up your thorns. I'm going to destroy everything you put in my way. Your only other choice is to get on my side. Let him rely on my protection and let him make peace with me. Those are the only two options that human beings have anywhere in the world. You're either on God's side or you're against God. If you're against God, he doesn't care. He's the almighty. You're the not. And he is going to burn up your thorns. He's going to stomp down your thorns. And he's going to do battle with you. Or you're going to trust him. You're going to rely on him. You're going to rely on him for your protection, and you're going to make peace with him. Isaiah says that phrase twice in verse 5, let him make peace with me, let him make peace with me. Anytime that you see phrases like that repeated in the Bible, they are repeated for emphasis. God is emphasizing that human beings need to make peace with him, or he is utterly going to punish and destroy the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover up her slain. They are going to ultimately be punished, or they're going to have peace with God. Those are the only two choices. Verse 6 starts with, In the days to come, Jacob will take root. The importance of the phraseology that Jacob will take root. I have a tree in my backyard. I have a very large tree in my backyard. And very far away from that tree, I have a fence. That fence has begun moving because the earth under it is moving because the roots from that tree are so large that those roots 
have now moved the land and moved the fence because the tree is deeply, deeply rooted. And no matter how much wind, how much rain, whatever else, that tree just stands there not shaken by anything. It is deeply rooted. God has, in punishing Israel for their sin against him, and we're going to read it in a moment, he has scattered them. He has not allowed them to put down roots. They are scattered all over the planet at this moment. But the promise is he's going to deliver them back to their own land, and then he's going to plant them in their own land until they have roots in the soil of their own land so that they cannot be moved, they cannot be shaken, they cannot be disturbed because they are deeply rooted in their land. In the days to come, Jacob will take root. And then as a result of having deep roots and plenty of water, since God's going to be the one watering them, they're then going to blossom and they're going to sprout and they will fill the whole world with fruit. The illustrative value of that is to say the same thing again that Isaiah has said in other places, that all the prophets of Israel have said, that the nations are going to receive blessing as a result of having Israel in their midst. The blessings of God are going to come down through Jerusalem, through Judea, through Israel, and then out to the nations of the world. Israel is going to bear fruit, and the whole world is going to feed from the fruit of the nation of Israel. Starting in verse 7, God compares how he treats Israel to how he has treated the rest of the world. Like the striking of him who has struck them, we have to get all our pronouns right here. There's going to be a lot of just he, them, and them. But what he's saying is, God struck the nations. We saw that. He punished the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. He punished the nations. He struck those nations. But he didn't strike Israel the same way. Like the striking of him who has struck them, has he struck them? So the same way that he struck the nations to destroy them, did he strike Israel to destroy them? The answer is obviously no. Or like the slaughter of his slain. Have they, Israel, been slain? Thou didst contend with them by banishing them, by driving them away. Okay, so that's how God has dealt with Israel. The enemy nations he has crushed, he has destroyed. He's done it throughout world history, and ultimately he's going to do it in the future. Whether we're reading Isaiah or whether we're reading Revelation, what we know is ultimately Christ comes back with that sword out of his mouth, with that rod of iron, and every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that he is, he's the king of kings, he's the Lord of lords. That's the ultimate end of everything. So God does not punish Israel the way he punishes the nations that he destroys and makes like dust and he blows them away. Instead, what he did with Israel was he contended with them by banishing them, by driving them away, by driving them out of their land. And with his fierce wind, he has expelled them on the day of the east wind. That's illustrative of the fact that there in the Middle East, especially in Jerusalem, if you get wind from the west, you're getting wind off the sea, and usually that's a pretty pleasant wind. 
But if you're getting wind from the east, that's coming in from the desert, and that's a hot, that's a scorching wind. That's a wind that's going to bring about famine and discomfort. And Israel's enemies lay to their east. And so if an eastern wind comes in, that might also be a reference to the nations that are constantly attacking Israel. Keep your finger there for a moment and turn to the book of Jeremiah with me. Jeremiah 18 for a moment. And we're going to see Jeremiah use that same language in order to describe the same event. Jeremiah is also prophesying about the same events that Isaiah is prophesying about. The scattering of Israel and ultimately the scattering of Judah as they're taken into Babylon. We're going to start reading at verse 13. Jeremiah 18, verse 13. Therefore, thus says the Lord, ask now among the nations, among the Goyim, among the Gentile nations, ask now among the nations, whoever heard the like of this, the virgin of Israel has done the most appalling thing. Verse 14 basically is a couple of Hebraisms that just mean isn't this obvious. Does the snow of Lebanon forsake the rock of the open country? In other words, if it snows, it snows on all the ground. It doesn't skip particular rocks. Or is the cold flowing water from a foreign land ever snatched away? Yes, constantly. That happens all the time. People need water there in the desert. So that verse just means these things are obvious. It is obvious that Israel has done the most appalling thing. Verse 15, God now explains what that appalling thing is. For my people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless gods, and they have stumbled from their ways, from the ancient paths, to walk in bypaths and not on a highway. To make their land a desolation, an object of perpetual hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and shake his head. In other words, God is saying that he is going to so forsake the land of Israel that when the nations, when the Gentiles see it, it's going to be unoccupied and they're going to hiss at it and shake their head at it because they're just not going to believe that this once great nation could fall so completely, so entirely. So verse 17 says, like an east wind, I will scatter them before the enemy. I will show them my back and not my face in the day of their calamity. So the way that God is contending with Israel, the way that he is correcting them, is that he is going to scatter them, but it's God himself who's doing the scattering. And it is God himself who is going to promise to gather them after he has scattered them. Because he's the one responsible for the scattering. He is also the one that is responsible for the rejoining of Israel. The regathering of Israel. So in the day of their calamity, he's not going to help them. He's going to show them his back and not his face. And then he refers to himself like the east wind who is going to scatter them. Now go back to Isaiah 27. I know this is a lot of flipping. Isaiah describes it this way. 
thou didst contend with them by banishing them, by driving them away. With his fierce wind, he has expelled them on the day of the east wind. That's language Jeremiah uses. That's language Isaiah uses. God makes that reference to the east wind, that hot wind, that destroying wind with which he is going to expel them out of their land and scatter them into the foreign nations. Therefore, through this, Jacob's iniquity will be forgiven. And I have to say, this is not about salvation. You're going to hear the language here of iniquity being forgiven. Remember that Israel's sin against God was the reason that God drove them out of their land. When he redeems them, he redeems them back into their land. So even though we're going to see the language of forgiveness and sin and redemption, it's not talking here about eternal redemption. It's not talking about eternal salvation. It's talking about Israel as a nation rebelling against God, God punishing them, and then God redeeming and restoring them, all of which he does for his own sake. But because they have sinned against him, they will be driven out of their land. And that is the way that God is going to deal with their sinfulness, not by destroying them like he has destroyed the other nations. He is going to punish them by driving them out of their land. Therefore, through this, Jacob's iniquity will be forgiven. Then they're going to be restored back to their land. And this will be the full price for the pardoning of his sin. When he makes, when he, the he there is God, when he makes all the altar stones like pulverized chalk stones, when the ashram and the incense altars will not stand. In other words, God is going to completely destroy their objects and altars of worship, which are spread throughout the land of Israel, the northern tribes in particular. God is not only going to drive them out of the land, but then he is going to pulverize their altars of foreign worship, he is going to make them like chalk stone so that it blows away in the wind and he's going to destroy their ashram and their incense altars. Those things are not going to stand. Jerusalem is now the fortified city in verse 10. The fortified city becomes isolated, a homestead forlorn and forsaken like the desert. There the calf will graze and there it will lie down and feed on its branches. And when the limbs are dry, they are broken off. Women come and make fire with them. For they are not a people of discernment. Therefore, their maker will not have compassion on them. And their creator will not be gracious to them. Same thing Jeremiah predicted. I will turn my back on them in their day of calamity. Why? Because they are not a people of discernment. They didn't understand, they didn't discern that with everything God had taken them through, bringing them out of Egypt, bringing them to the land of milk and honey, protecting them in their promised land, nevertheless, once they got comfortable, once they got fat and happy, suddenly they were worshiping other gods and other altars and other asherim. And so God says, I'm going to punish them. But the way I'm going to punish them is that I'm going to drive them out of their land. And he describes it as an east wind 
that is going to come and drive them out of their land. And in that way, they are going to have to pay for their sin. They're driven out of their land so that they can pay for their sin and their rebellion against God. But then God is going to cleanse the land. In a moment, it's going to say that God is going to thresh the land. He's going to clean the land. And then he's going to go and bring them all back because they will have paid a price for the fact that they all abandoned God. Verse 12. And it will come about in that day that the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates, that's all the way out in Iraq right now, to the brook of Egypt, all the way down to the Nile, and you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. So let's recall the order here one more time. I want to stress the order. At the end of chapter 26, God punishing the nations. God punishing the whole world for its bloodshed. Chapter 27 starts with God punishing Leviathan, binding Satan. Then God turns his attention to Israel in order to establish the kingdom that he has promised them all the way through the Old Testament. And the way that he begins that establishment is by gathering them one by one and bringing them back to the land. You'll notice that the threshing that God describes is threshing that reaches as far as the original promise made to Abraham that this is all the land that he was going to give to Israel. Originally, it was going to reach all the way to the Euphrates, and it was going to reach all the way south down into the Nile and down into Egypt. That's the land promise that was made to Abraham, even though Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel never occupied that entire area of the Middle East. And yet when God starts cleaning his land, threshing his land in order to get ready to bring his people back to it, he says it's going to be from the brook in Egypt all the way to the Euphrates, the stream of the Euphrates. God is establishing that entire land that he promised to Abraham because that is where he is going to plant his people who he is going to go gather one by one. He's the same God who cast them out. He's the same God who scattered them. He's the same God who will go get them. And he goes and gets them one by one, which I find really, really interesting because... People oftentimes say, well, it's been thousands of years. It's been in the area of 3,000 years since the northern tribes were scattered. And so they say, does God still know where they are? Can God still find them after all that time? I mean, they've intermarried. They've lost their heritage. They look like the Gentiles these days. Does God still know who they are and where they are? Can he still find them? Well, as we said on Sunday morning, God wrote names down before the foundation of the world. He wrote them down in the Lamb's Book of Life. And if you belong to Christ, your name is in that book. And then thousands of years passed. And he found you because your name was in his book. And he knows who you are and where you are. Same God has the exact same ability to go find every one of the sons of Israel that he has determined to find. And if you say it's impossible for him to find them because so much time has passed and intermarrying and they've lost their heritage and all that, then you would have to equally admit that God couldn't find 
people who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Because that has been around for a whole lot longer than the Abrahamic Covenant. So the same God who can find anybody he wants promises here that after he has threshed from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook in Egypt, that then he is going to gather Israel one by one. And just so there's no confusion about it, he says, O sons of Israel. That's who he's talking about. It will come about. Wow, is this interesting. Watch this now. This will be how we close up our evening. Verse 13. And it will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown. In the Middle East, trumpets were a form of communication. Very much like they are still in the military, even though those trumpet calls have now been digitized and go out over loudspeakers. But there are trumpet calls that we all know to this very day. We know taps. When we hear it, we know it. When we hear reveille, we know that. We know what that call is. A trumpet is much louder than a human voice. And so trumpets are used to tell entire ranks of armies when it's time to move, when it's time to gather, when it's time for the reveille, when it's time to get up. And so there's going to be this great trumpet blown. Why? Because God is calling together his people. And he is gathering together his people, Israel. And there will be a great trumpet that will be blown. And those who were perishing, those of Israel who were perishing in the land of Assyria, the very place that they were scattered to, and who were scattered into the land of Egypt, those very ones will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. That's what God intends to do. That's what God plans to do. But this isn't the only place that that's talked about. Turn to Zechariah 2 for just a moment. Find Zechariah in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets. Zechariah chapter 2 is a very short chapter. I'm going to read the whole thing because it is exactly parallel to what Isaiah just predicted. You know, I say time and time again, repeatedly, ad nauseum, you're sick of me saying it now, all the prophets of Israel speak with one voice. They all say the same thing and they all promise this glorious regathering to Israel. Zechariah chapter 2, verse 1. Then I lifted up my eyes and I looked, and behold, there was a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, Where are you going? And he said, To measure Jerusalem, to see how wide it is and how long it is. And behold, the angel who was speaking with me was going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him. And he said, Run, speak to that young man, saying, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. In other words, there are going to be so many people, so many cattle, so much riches, such population growth, such overwhelming of the vineyard, that walls won't be able to contain it, and yet it will still be Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. For I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around it, and I will be the glory in her midst. 
God's going to protect it. The same way that we just read in Isaiah, that he's going to protect his vine, and he's going to water his vine, and he's going to take care of his vine. But look at verse 6. Ho there, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have dispersed you as the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. God takes credit for dispersing them. I have dispersed you, but hold on to that particular phraseology. I have dispersed you as the four winds of heaven. God himself says that. And then verse 7, Ho Zion, which means pay attention. Hey, Zion, escape you who are living with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after glory he has sent me against the nations which plunder you. For he that touches you touches the apple of my eye. For behold, I will wave my hand over them so that they will be plunder for their slaves. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. And behold, I am coming and I dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Sing for joy. You know, that vineyard, that fruitful vineyard. Oh, sing about it. There's going to be a lot of joyful singing going on when God actually finally accomplishes the, re-establish- the reestablishment of Jerusalem and Israel. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord, and many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day, and they will become my people, and then I will dwell in your midst, and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will possess Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem." Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. God's going to do what God's going to do, and no human beings get to have an opinion about it. All you can do is be silent and watch him do it. Now, I told you a moment ago to hang on to the phrase, I have dispersed you. God talking, I have dispersed you as the four winds of the heavens declares the Lord. Okay, so the Lord himself says, I dispersed you to the four winds. Turn to Matthew 24. The book of Matthew, chapter 24. Matthew 24 is Jesus' eschatology. Jesus describing the things to come. And in it, he reaffirms the very things that we just read out of Isaiah and Zechariah. That God is the one who scattered Israel. God is the one who is going to gather Israel. And he's going to do it with a trumpet call to regather them all when the birds of prey come to feed on the flesh of captains and the flesh of kings. Matthew 24, let's start reading in verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. What are those days of tribulation? Isaiah describes them as the days when God is going to pour judgment on the whole earth. That's the same way that Daniel describes it. 
a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. That is going to start with Israel, the day of Jacob's trouble, but then God is going to judge all the nations of the earth. According to Isaiah, what's the next thing that happens? After God judges all the nations of the earth, the next thing he does is that he punishes Leviathan. According to Revelation 20, that is the next thing he does, that he puts Satan into the abyss. Then what's the next thing that happens? He regathers Israel. Let's keep reading. Verse 30. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Jesus just confirmed exactly what we read out of Zechariah, which was also predicted by Isaiah. Jesus just put a cap on it and said, that's actually going to happen. Trumpet and everything. And an angel is going to go forward with a trumpet, and he's going to gather those that belong to Israel. And he's going to gather them from where? From the four winds, which is exactly where Zechariah had God saying God was going to scatter them. Okay, so what was the point of all that? I know that was a lot of information just in order to get through that chapter of Isaiah, but what's the point of it? First point of it is the Bible keeps telling the same story over and over again. We looked at the Old Testament. We looked at the New Testament. We just keep saying the same story over and over again. The language is a little different here and there, but the end result and the details remain the same. Nothing changes. Why am I premillennial? Well, because the Bible is a premillennial telling of world history. That God is going to punish the nations, and he is going to punish Satan, and he is going to regather Israel, and he is going to establish a kingdom. That's the way that it is laid out. There's nothing you can do about that whether you're reading it out of Revelation 19 and 20 or whether you're reading it out of Isaiah 27, it's the same story told in the same order, the same events take place. But more importantly, what we also see here is a God who is in complete control of human history. What we see here is a God who says in advance what he's going to do and that he is going to accomplish it and it is part of his nature, part of his character, that he cannot deny himself. Once he has said it, he's going to make it good. Once he has said it, it's going to come true. He's going to exercise his almighty power to bring about the very things that he said he was going to do. We right here, right now, January 20th, 2021, are in the same hands of the same God who is in the same kind of charge of this world. And he knows what he's doing. And if he is about to topple America by giving America leaders that don't follow after his rules, his dictates, well, then that is part of the punishment of America who is long overdue for punishment. Amen. If he allows America to exist in its present form for another couple hundred years, that's up to him. But every day we get up and we see more and more indication that God is punishing the nations. Just like he said. Just like he said in Isaiah. 
Just like he said in Revelation, God is going to punish the nations. That punishment is beginning, but it is going to get worse and worse, and it is going to culminate. God himself said, if you get in my way, I'm going to trample you down, burn you down like briars. I'm going to burn you up. Or get on my side, make peace with me. Same deal today. Either you are getting in the way of what God is doing, in which case he's going to steamroll over you, or you're going to make peace with him and realize that he's in charge. He's got it. You're going to be okay. Like David said, I'm old, I have been young, and I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor the seed begging bread. So you're going to be okay. He's going to take care of you. Who knows what's going to happen to America? Who knows what's going to happen tomorrow? Who knows? God knows. He just hasn't bothered to tell us. But he knows. He's in charge of it. He knows who you are, and he knows where you are, and he knows that he has placed his everlasting love on you, and he is going to take care of you and get you to your eternal destiny. My point is, a God who has this kind of control of human history can take care of you. You got it? Amen, sir. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.